Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the podcast is really simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing the boundaries between education and care in schools. My guest is Zara Wright the Director of SEND for the Waden Multi-Academy Trust. Zara is also the Deputy Head of an MLD school and has over 15 years experience teaching in mainstream and specialist settings. The SENDcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. And as always, before we get started, I take a moment to mention us. Because we are here to help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. And if you are a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, we can help. And did you know you can use B-Square's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time, saving you money, and also simplifying the whole assessment and data process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and I will take you through our assessment software. Now, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing the boundaries between education and care. We will discuss the challenges schools are facing and also potential solutions. My guest this week is Zara Wright, the Director of SEND for the Wade and Multi-Academy Trust. Zara is also the Deputy Head of an MLD school and has over 15 years experience teaching in mainstream and specialist setting. She is a qualified SENCO and holds an MED in inclusion. And Zara is one of those busy people who fills her spare time supporting local charities and organisations as well as raising her children. Welcome to the show, Zara. Thank you, Dale. It's lovely to be here. In schools, there is a big blur between education and care. The lack of external support means all schools are facing a big challenge. They need to support and care for their pupils in a wide range of areas. Absolutely. And I almost try to put in that image, I'm talking about to get to the education, but it sounds like when I said, every time I said that, it's almost like we don't want to do it. We don't really care. We just want to do education, which sounded really uncaring. So I I, I kept trying to write it. I can't, I can't. I can't get to it. Caring is important. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely important. I think the problem that's happening is the the huge burden of responsibility on school staff to carry mental health due to the lack of services and the variability and the quality of the support they're getting due to long waiting lists and things like that. And actually, some of the school staff are very happy to do that. And other people who perhaps trained to be teachers quite a long time ago want to come in and teach. And we know from research that actually there are some teachers that are quite scared about the, the pressure of having, the, they think they have to solve mental health issues and they think they have to fix children. And actually that becomes quite daunting for them and can put them off the profession. And in a profession where we know where there's really poor retention and recruitment rates, that, that is an issue. And who's to say that if you're a great maths teacher, should you be able to just come in and teach great maths? Or should you have to deal with lots of other things as well? And that's a, that's a conversation I have frequently with schools, which is an interesting one. There was a post I saw on a Facebook group, which was this sort of stuff. 
and it was about having to support children. And I think it was through trauma, trauma-informed dis- But it had this big, long acronym and a phrase with it, which I think scares people. Yes. So this person goes, trauma-informed practice, I think it might have been. We need to do this. And this person's going, I'm doing maths. I'm trying to do this. I've got this much curriculum to get through. Blah, 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 blah. I don't have time for this as well. And I'm going, yeah, but it kind of, if you did this, knowing what it was, yeah. If you did this, it's going to then help you get through that better rather than fight. what you're doing at the moment is fighting against a challenge, but you're not really learning about it. You're just trying to do your math. You're just trying to get through it all. Actually, the children aren't there in the place really to learn. Yes. You need to get them in the right place ready to learn before we can move on. Yeah. But the problem is, I think, because there's something, there's always acronyms flying about and, and also it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really complicated area because it's not defined anywhere. It's not saying this is what schools should do. Because in reality, yeah. this is a care thing. Yes. There's no legal requirement about the care thing. So it comes back to the schools. And, and the advice out there is all very vague and grey and woolly. I think for me, so I've recently done a, a master's degree in psychology and I, I focused on this area for my dissertation. And I had the, the privilege of interviewing lots of, of school staff, which was great to hear their lived experiences of what's going on on the front line and 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 all the documentation it's very much we do have a responsibility absolutely in schools to make sure that we are promoting positive mental health and I think all schools have that responsibility and that is written in a lot of the sort of government DfE Ofsted stuff we absolutely have it makes common sense doesn't it yeah to promote positive mental health for our young people on the flip side of that, there's also research to show there's something called prevalence inflation hypothesis, which is absolutely fascinating. And it's that in educating young people about mental health and, and putting it into the curriculum and having great assemblies and PSHE lessons, et cetera, on that, one of the sort of ramifications of that has been the over-reporting of mental health issues itself, which is really interesting. And there's now conflicting research where there's lots of research to show that mental health is on the rise. We're in mental health crisis, particularly post-pandemic. The figures for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, self-harm, all these things are through the roof. But then there's other research that contradicts that to say that actually mental health hasn't got any worse. It's just that it's being reported more. And um, there's evidence to show both. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. And the knock-on effect of that that we need to think about in schools is how have we got over-reporting in our schools and how have we got this perhaps a bit of contagion that comes into it where mental health is just being exacerbated by having a spotlight put on it, which I think is, is, I don't have the answers to this, but I think it's fascinating to consider. I'm going to flip it the other way is, did we have a couple of years where we did lived very different lives? Yeah. We've now gone back to the life we had before and gone, this is a bit rubbish. Because my daughter, for one, loved learning at home. Yeah. Cause, and her phrase that she wrote on the feedback to school was, I didn't have to deal with the idiots. Yes. Yeah. This is the work. She got on with it. Her day was so much shorter when she had all the work set in the morning. Her day would be done by midday because she just burned through this work, got it all done to a high standard. And it was dumb. And then they had to, she had to have the lessons at the set time and she was just getting the work done. And she, so she experienced learning in a different way. Yes. 
And then she's gone back into school and it literally just flipped back to how it was before without going, what worked well? What didn't work well? Yeah. What should we integrate? What could we integrate? What changes? And I, perhaps the people sit there in their room and going, actually, I was happier then. And there are, I, yeah. I know there are people who have worked in London for years, were forced to stay at home and then going, I can't go back into London. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's not saying, oh, no, you, you're fine. It's like, actually, are we saying that actually that was damaging you, but you just, it kind of built up and built up and yeah. you didn't notice and by having this two-year break, you've now gone, I'm not doing that. Is that kind of... Yeah, like the frog in the boiling pot. Yes. And I think it's really interesting. So if you put a frog in cold water and turn the heat up, it, it, it realises it's too hot and it jumps out. But if you... Sorry, it doesn't jump out. If you have put a frog into boiling water, obviously it would jump out. And I think we spend long periods of time in schools and we spend long periods of time in our careers in certain environments and they get worse and worse and worse, but we don't notice because it happens slowly over time. And the pandemic perhaps made us rethink a lot of things. But perhaps over the higher level, that thinking, that changing hasn't happened. Yes, absolutely. So we've all had to go back in going, I liked doing that. And now I'm forced to do something I don't want to do, which feels alien to me and actually not as good for my wellbeing. I think there's lots of, obviously there's lots of different types of children, but in some of the interviews I did, it was really apparent that a lot of children, often neurodiverse children, much preferred the setup of, of working at home. Whereas others, like my stepson, for example, he's neurotypical and he missed school so much. He missed the social element. He missed the clubs. He missed the playing football at break and, and all those sorts of things. So it's really dependent on the type of child. But some of them, yeah, are getting quite a raw deal that they've suddenly had to flip back. Yeah. And that is, it, it will be complete. But it's the thing is, we, we haven't, those who loved it, those who hated it. And we really should unpick more why. Yeah. And that should be going into some changes. I don't know what you can do because the bit I completely understand is however children learn, you've got to have the social aspect. Yes. And I remember before COVID, I was working with a company which had 100 employees and they did not have an office. They were all over the world. I'm going, how's this working? And I, and I watch videos. I listen to this bloke talk about it. He goes... The problem is we realised is people got lonely. They would literally not leave their house. So what they basically do is they actually put extra effort into make sure their employees socialise and join clubs. Yeah. And they make sure they really find out what each person is doing and they meet up for socials. And it is working, if you're learning from home, that's great, but you have to have the social, you have to have, be able to build those teamwork skills. And that's what I think a lot of early years are seeing is yeah, These those children building are isolated. Blocks and those developmental stages have disappeared, which is really hard for children. And everyone had such a varied experience in COVID. Like my, my son was really lucky, for example, he was a toddler, but because me and my partner are both key workers, he went to nursery every single day because he went to a big nursery that was open. So he didn't really miss out. Whereas other children would have had long periods of time at home, not interacting and not seeing grandparents and not doing all those normal things they would do, which would have had a huge impact on them. Before we were recording, we were talking about my friend who has four children. And over yes. COVID, I thought, that is so good. You've got four kids. It's like being in school. You've got friends constantly. You would have dealt with them. That's great. And then he's like, oh, yeah, son's going over for a sleepover. And I'm like, why are you worried? He went, is this his first sleepover? But he's yeah. in year six. I went, wow, yeah, none of your kids have had a sleepover. Yeah. And your eldest is at the end of junior school. And he still hadn't, actually, although there are four kids here, 
there are still loads of things you miss out. Have been delayed, yeah. Like I've never actually taken my son. He's never spent the night anywhere other than my ha- our home, really. We've just moved home recently, but he's only ever slept the night because we, he was a really poorly baby when he was first born and then we went into COVID. So he's never spent the night anywhere else. So we're actually having our first expedition with him coming up soon. We're taking him away, which is really scary, but I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> but, it, but that's, again, that's exactly it. Is you, you, when I remember there's a film called Three Kings. He goes, it's a really a raw deal. You only get the courage to do something once you've done it. Yes. So going away for the first yeah. time is I'm scary. <laughs> but then there was somebody who for some reason thought it was a good idea to take their one-week-old child somewhere and went, yeah, it's gone. It wasn't the worst. Best wasn't the worst, but it's fine travelling. And you get people can do it, Yeah. but we put these barriers in front of us, which is impacting on mental health. And it's this certainty is the biggest thing I've learned. We love to know what's going to happen. We love yes. to know it's definitely going to be fine and nothing will definitely go wrong and then we're happy. Yeah. But no one can ever give you that. No, because predictability is soothing and, and reassuring. Absolutely. We're going off on tangents already. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so one of, one of the things I guess that I wanted to talk about today was I work with very closely with a lot of the staff who are frontline in schools and a lot of these people they're amazing for and I just want to say that all those people out there that are working in schools with young people who have mental health difficulties hats off to you you're incredible I am concerned about them and I guess I wanted to talk about it because I wanted a lot of them feel quite alone with it a lot of them feel like they're carrying this invisible load and a lot of them I know aren't sleeping at night or worry about these children constantly or perhaps are paying for therapy privately out of their own money and then going and talking about school and talking about these children, which to me is really wrong because one of the, the big recommendations from the work I've been doing is that all these staff that are really carrying that load and under that pressure and working day to day with things like suicide attempts and ideation, self-harm, trauma, eating disorders, you know, they should be having really high quality professional supervision because we know that well-being for both teaching staff and support staff is deteriorating. We know that from research. Yeah. We know that schools are very important and education is absolutely critical for the future. So we have to look after these people because they're exhausted and broken and having sleepless nights and carrying this huge weight of responsibility. And what's amazing, though, is they're also hopeful and they're also relentless in their pursuit to to find solutions and it was although a lot of the stuff we talked about in the interviews was quite dark at times they were also hopeful and there are solutions out there which I think is amazing and one of the things I would recommend to school is that you get those people that are really carrying the load the best possible professional high quality supervision and you pick that supervisor really carefully and that's one of the things we've done in our trust so all our DSLs, because it's not actually statutory for them to have supervision, which I think is crazy. It's just good practice. Have professional quality supervision. And all of our sort of ELSAs or those delivering wellbeing interventions or sort of pastoral support also have high quality supervision as well. So we make sure that they are looked after and can have that reassurance that they're offered in supervision. Just want to clarify, I think I know. When you're saying supervision, you're not saying a boss. You're basically oh, no. saying someone who's going, you're going to deal with a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm here behind you to check you're okay. And it's that sort of 
you checking in with them, going yeah, supporting them, supporting. It's not a supervisor as in like no, a, come not on, overseeing. more, more, more. Yeah, it's so, supportive. It's called supervision, though. Yeah, so there's no actual definitive agreed term of supervision, and the history of the term is really interesting. And originally, I think it comes from the Latin word to sort of oversee or to look upon. And it did go through phases of, yes, I'm the boss, I'm the supervisor in that sort of managerial way. But what I mean by professional supervision is where you have a very respectful dialogue between two professionals. And the supervisor is usually somebody who is more experienced. And so, for example, the, the supervisor we used for our DSLs was a DSL and is also a play therapist. And she's incredible and is hugely experienced. So when they go to her, they talk through their cases or perhaps how their cases are impacting on them. And she gives them reassurance. She gives them advice. It's a safe space. She often gives them resources and they all come out feeling better prepared to do their jobs, which is amazing. So, so that would be one of my key recommendations for supporting those key staff in these very blurry times between health and care and what should be going on. So I think you obviously have all these staff meetings and all these meetings which go on in schools about the curriculum and learning and this and that. But often this kind of the care and that mental health side, you've got these teachers, you said at the beginning, you talk about them being isolated. Yeah, so these teachers are going through this, supporting these children, doing it all over. There isn't that passing that on. There is that if it gets to me, you go to the head teacher, you're the safeguarding, all that lot. But actually these teachers are supporting these children in lots of different ways. You said some of them are then going on to own counselling to yeah. deal with what's going on, but it's often not really actually thought about or structured in schools as it much as it should be, definitely. where we have an English lead who definitely leads on English and English yeah. you go to them. Whereas the, in, I, I feel in lots of schools, it's teachers deal with it in their own way. Yes. And then, well, there's a mental health lead. It's I'm dealing with this. I'll do my own research. And you have this kind of, not inconsistent because that sounds like it's bad, but you, you, you do want to have different experiences, different ways of dealing with it, but you're not, you haven't got a form to share what works here, what doesn't work and build something which works. It's, it sits in the background. Yeah, it can be, approaches can be quite fragmented or mental health can be that bolt on, often like Zen can be, but there, there is also huge amounts of great practice, great networks out there. And there are some schools that really are getting it right and doing an amazing job. For me, I think one of the things school leaders really need to discuss is where their boundaries sit and they need to have in-depth dialogues around this. So what are we saying our maths teacher is responsible for? So for example, well, there, there are a few things I think schools have to be responsible for when it comes to mental health and they can't move away from it. They have to be responsible for promoting positive mental health. Yep. That's just a, a non-negotiable for me. And I think because of the way schools are set up and we see our children Monday to Friday, term time, a form tutor sees them daily. They see them over time. They get to know them. They get to know their personality. The responsibility sits in identifying changes in behavior, which should then be passed on. And I think that is another responsibility we can't really move away from because other than parents who else who's an, a professional or professional adult who else sees that child every morning five days a week and that's that's so important and that's so valuable so I think when we see children in schools we have to be trained really well trained on picking up signs of poor mental health just as we would be on signs of safeguarding issues neglect or whichever category it falls into 
So promoting positive mental health and picking up the signs, I think, are just two things that schools cannot move away from. And they have to accept that responsibility. Where it gets really tricky is when perhaps you have a mental health issue and you have, say, you've got a young person that's very regularly self-harming and has suicide ideation, ideation and you've passed that on. So perhaps you've had an, a consultation with the educational psychologist, you've referred them to CAMS, you've had parent meetings, you've done all those things, but then they sit on a waiting list for a very long time you still have to see them every day, five days a week. You still have to pick them up when they've self-harmed. You still have to pick them up when they say they want to kill themselves. And that's what I worry about is those staff who, I'm not sure what it says in their job description, and I know job descriptions can be willy and vague, but I wonder in how many staff's job descriptions it talks about this stuff explicitly and having to deal with the mental health side of things. That's the thing is, I've been a governor, chair of governors, worked in or around schools, never been a teacher, but you read all the policies and you read all that stuff and it's exactly that. You report to this, mm. they get involved. And it kind of says that once you've told CAMS, it's done and you're finished and you can walk yeah. away. But I think in, in the current local authority, the average waiting list for CAMS is 27 months. Yeah, So that that's 27 months, especially if you're that form tutor in a secondary school, that yeah. you've done the report, CAMS have got involved. And you're going to see that child for 27 months. And they might get some support, but to actually that's get like the autism pathway to get to the diagnosis part is 27 months. Now, counselling happens in between then. Mm. But it's sometimes the quality of the counselling and things like that. But that teacher, as you said, especially the form teacher, is seeing that child for the next 27 months while they're waiting for that, while they're in that uncertainty, while they're still feeling all of these things. You can't just ignore it. No. But there really is can't. no guidance. There is, it says report to CAMS and the flowchart stops. Yeah. And, and this is a thing because all the people I work with do things with good intentions. And a lot of them, they're personality types. They're a fixer. They're a rescuer. They want to help these children. And actually, they suffer in yeah. silence every day watching these children deteriorate through their self-harm, through their eating disorder, disorders. Sorry. And through things like body dysmorphia, and they see these children withdraw, and they and it's just so hard because they care because they're good people, and they're watching this. But actually, they were employed to support educational outcomes in the classroom, and that's where it gets really messy and 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 really blurred. And what's been happening even before COVID is schools have been employing more staff in non-teaching pastoral roles, which I absolutely think is, is needed. But the research has also shown that that's created this sort of muddiness around what the role of the teacher and the TA is. So you employ, I don't know, a pastoral support officer or you have a pastoral team in school. Fantastic. They're not teaching. They've got the time and the space to give children to really listen to them and, and unpick the problem rather than a busy teacher that's teaching 30 lessons a week and rushing all over the place. So great, have a pastoral support team. But what schools forget to do is actually revisit job descriptions and have explicit communication around those teams and what their function is and how they work along the other school staff. And I've seen it happen in, in schools I've worked in. You have these amazing people that come in and work who are, who are really well qualified, but I'm just like, oh, so you're doing that now. What? What am I doing? Because I used to do that. And it gets confusing for teachers and they're not really sure why they're there. 
And I suppose you get this thing where you get this amazing team brought in, they get a lovely building or an old building, whatever, and that team or a cupboard, and they have a really clear definition of this is what you're going to do. But the problem is, as you said, the rest of the school hasn't been adjusted. Yeah. And it's a big adjustment for students as well. Like these teams need to be introduced and there needs to be explicit communication around them. And perhaps you need to, like I say, go back to people's job descriptions, have assemblies on these things and explain why they're there. I like to be really transparent with young people and always explain the why. I think that's really, really important to them. So that's a, another thing. And, and we've got even more of those people and those roles in school since, since the pandemic as well. And they're critical. But again, they're frontline and they're carrying the load and they need that really high quality supervision. So having that effective pastoral team model with people that are really well trained is, is really important. But one of the problem comes, problems that come, unless they're sort of a level seven qualified therapist, all you can really offer children at school is, is early intervention in, this, in the types of, of work that we do, like in our ELSA or our drawing and talking or our mentoring conversations. This is all early intervention. We're not really offering any high level therapeutic stuff. And actually, we're, we're just holding the space. When we're, we're, just, gi- we're giving them a safe place. Yeah. We're not challenging them, but we're also not really supporting them to get out of where they currently are. Yeah. And because people don't have, although they're highly skilled and they're great people, they don't have the skill set to manage an eating disorder or to unpick years of complex trauma and it's and then and then they're just holding the space for this child and maybe meeting with them every week and the child's talking to them about superficial things but they're not actually addressing the underlying trauma or, or grief or whatever it is and then because we're having to hold the space for high need students some of that early intervention work that would be really beneficial we can't do because schools have x amount of resource and time and staff so the whole system becomes really backwards which is is tough i remember years ago and we're probably talking about 15 years ago i can't remember when it was but i remember starting to see these pastoral teams arrive in schools properly arrive and it was like we finally learned to improve math grades it's not about doing more maths Mm. it's actually about there's something there's children struggling with something or struggling with something's impacting them and that's what we need to support them with we need to remove those barriers Mm. and then magically Maths will just suddenly go up, which it basically does. Yeah. yeah, if you can actually concentrate your maths, your maths will improve. Yes. If you cannot concentrate in maths, you're not going to get anywhere. And we find, I think we've learned this, but then over budget cuts, about six, seven years, it, it all started disappearing again. Yeah. And we went back to, we don't have the money for that. And I'm going, but it's quite clear the evidence shows. Yes. But so we're back here. But the problem is, I think we're late. Yeah. And I also think, Back then, the internet and social media wasn't really having an impact. Mm. So I think we're getting there, but we're still a long way behind Hugely. where we need to be. And you talked about body dysmorphia and things like that. And social media has a big influence on people yes. feeling this. And when you're talking about people are saying mental health, it's, it's being reported more, but may not be. It's, it's We're seeing it so much on social media and yeah. TV because we're raising the profile Everyone's going, oh, that might be me. And it's almost fashionable. Yeah. It sounds the, odd. The idea going- of contagion and, and wanting to be part of the group. And I've sat with girls in year nine that have self-harmed. And you unpick one, they'll say, because well, all my friends were and I didn't want to be the odd one out. And I was just like, oh, that's just, 
absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, so it, it, it's difficult times and we are behind. And, and I think the thing for us is, like my generation, we don't get the social media thing. We, I, I didn't even have a phone when I was at school. Oh, I did have a phone, but you just played Snake on it and that was about it. And we didn't have Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff, but it's, it's just everywhere. You can't escape from it for young people. It is completely different now and it has such an impact on their identity and their internal world and not in a great way. When someone says generation, I'm going, how far apart are we? So, oh, you had a phone at school with snake on. Okay, we're that far apart. That's right. Interesting. But yeah, but I, I liked when we were young, you left school behind at three o'clock and it started again at half eight. Yeah. Whatever went on stopped at the school on the way home and it was yeah. done. That's continuing 24 seven. Yeah. And that's and the exhausting. bit that no matter you say, put your phone down, it just it doesn't work. It does not say the words, put your phone down or ignore yeah. it. It doesn't work. Because you know it's going on, your phone's still buzzing. But there's a load of work to do around that. And I, just to be clear, I'm not a fan of banning phones. Banning something means you don't learn how to use it responsibly. Yes, yeah. Whereas I think a school is somewhere you learn to use it responsibly. Yeah. You follow the rules, you use it responsibly, but you also learn to use it the right way. And that's great, but you've got to teach children. The parents need to be involved in this as well as teaching it responsibly. I think it's hard and I see both sides of the argument, but then I work with a lot of DSLs who so much safeguarding work is created out of the fact that children have mobile phones and that's really hard. Yeah. So, so it's, I see both sides of the yes. argument, but I do, yeah, they absolutely need to be taught to use it responsibly as well. I think one of the other things schools need to do, and I'm a big advocate for this, is a a lot of our children we know with mental health issues, not all, but a lot of our neurodiverse. And a huge thing for me is educating about neurodiversity. We should just all be doing this all the time. It should yes. be mandatory. And I think if schools were more neurodiverse friendly and everyone really got neurodiversity, a lot of these mental health problems potentially wouldn't get as, uh, as bad. And I just think, and, and you were saying about how things have changed over time. Well, I remember when I did my teach training 16, 17 years ago, we had nothing really about SEN or child psychology or anything of that. But I know it goes in cycles because older teachers that I was working with had all that stuff and had Maslow's hierarchy of needs and child development and all that thing. We had nothing. And then I now lecture at our skit and I do the mental health strand and the SEN strand. And now we're back to teaching about child development and attachment theory and Maslow and child psychology and all this great stuff. And, and the, the student teachers, early career teachers, love it and they think it's amazing and they totally get it and embrace it. And it's a real pleasure to work with them. They're amazing and I'm so pleased that they're the future teachers. But we should have had that input when we trained 16, 17 years ago. And I think that's really important that if we're really going to make the changes in schools, that our, our new and future teachers have that, that knowledge. But also schools now can do things like teach about neurodiversity in the curriculum, have assemblies on neurodiversity, teach about the social model of inclusion. And I've done this in my schools and children love it. The other thing they love learning about is neuroscience and what underpins their mental health. And they find it fascinating and there's different ways to explain it to different age or age or developmentally stage children there's great ways of explaining it there's loads of wonderful books out there like the whole brain child and things like that 
that children love finding out about their own neurodiversity and about neuroscience and why they think the way they do. And I really think that we should be teaching more of that in schools and it would actually help the mental health crisis. One thing I just want to say to anyone listening is if you are going to do assembly on neurodiversity, do not go to the extreme. My daughter's school had a secondary school really wanted to show what it looked like. So they found quite extreme examples going, this is what autism looks like. And you're going, well, no, because actually in this hall right now, there's probably 15 kids who are undiagnosed. That's what autism looks like. It's invisible. Yeah. So we start very gently and we start with this, the concept that we all have needs. Every single person has needs. And I normally talk about my own needs and what they are and how I get through a day and what I need. And then I might talk about popular colleagues and what they need. And then I explain different types of needs and that as we have a responsibility as a community to understand that we all have needs and that there are different sorts of groups or patterns of behaviour and we need to be sensitive and we need to be empathetic to that. So I go at it from a much softer angle. But yeah, you just literally go and they're going like, oh, this, yeah, this person here and you're going... Yeah, that is one version. Yeah. Actually, but I suppose what they don't want to do is say, yeah, so some, it just means this, this, this. And some of them are going, well, actually, that's, that's it. it. It is, I yeah. prefer that if you say it's just, here are some examples of what it might look like in school. Yes. And you're actually identifying maybe 15 kids in front of you. I think it's that sort of thing. But then what you're saying is, by worrying about it, you're saying it's wrong. Being neurodiverse is wrong. So it's a whole thing of actually, are, when you were trying to explain it, are you really accepting why are you saying it's wrong are you saying it's damaged or rather than just it's different yeah and it's you, a you real have to ex- explain that beauty and difference and how boring it would be if we were all the same and focusing on the amazing things to do with neurodiversity and not the deficit and that's where the narrative i'm a real big believer on changing the narrative around this do you know dungeons and dragons you know the idea of concept yes yeah. i know the concept so you have all these characters you could be an orc or a pay whatever it is but generally what you have is you have like a character of points, don't you? Yeah. And if you want to be a, a warrior, you're going to have strength and this and this. Generally, what am I thinking when I talk about autism? I go, yeah, generally, if you want to be this, you roll, you get the points this way. I said, if you're, you just, your points aren't aligned. Right. It's almost you've got the strength of that, but you've also got the strength of that person there. And you've got that, they don't line up how they typically would. Yes. So you've still got the same number of points. Yes, that's a really good way of saying it. But yeah. they're not, if you've got that, you probably profile. would have that, which meant you're good at sport. Well, I've got that, but I don't have that, so I'm rubbish at sport. But I've got that bit of me, which, but I've got this, which, and it's kind of, it, it, it's not sensibly groups. And I say, yeah. so I'm going, so it's not, and it's not less. Yeah. It's not a disability. It's, it's just different. It's different. And why it's important we're all different, because we're not all going to be teachers. Some of us need to be doctors and some of us need to be hairdressers or, whatever it is and we all need to be different so we work as a community um, and it's sort of normalizing and, and celebrating difference which I yes. think is, is is a key message a guy I worked with recently he's been working with some of our schools TJ Powers I don't know if you've heard of him he's absolutely incredible and the feedback we had from his sessions he came into one of our schools and did sessions with students but also sessions with parents and he teach he's a neuroscientist but he's really young and cool. So the, the kids really connected with him and he teaches them about the things like dopamine and oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins and how they work and how they affect the body. But he does it in like a cool way with avatars and stuff. And I 
just can't express how well received it was. And if you're looking for someone to come in and, and talk and teach children about neurodiversity and about owning their mental health and about neuroscience, he's, he's incredible. So he's on Twitter and all, all that sort of stuff. He was absolutely great. But yeah, educating children and parents and school staff about neurodiversity, about child psychology is just really, really key. Definitely. And it is neurodiversity is they talk about it one in a hundred, one in a hundred are diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. And you're only really diagnosed if you're really struggling with life. Yes. So there's probably another maybe nine, 10 who are autistic, but they're 40, they're 50, yeah. they're married with kids. They've struggled with things, but generally, but there's things like that. So you watch that Chris Packham, you mm. watch a number of people who are working and living and doing things, yeah. but they're also autistic. But there's within your staff room, probably one of the people you're sitting with is autistic. They just might not realise it yet. Yeah. And that's the thing is when we say one in a hundred, that's just diagnosed. Yes. We don't know. There's a whole thing I'm interested in about actually how there's a lot more than we realise. And I, I, I laugh is if you think like the Trojan horse. Yeah. Who came up with that? Who came up with, I've got an idea. <laughs> Somebody who thought outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be an autistic person came up with a Trojan horse. That's my theory. Yeah. And our, our, our greatest thinkers are our neurodiverse people. There's a really great book, The Pattern Seekers. I can't remember the name of the author. Baron Cohen, I think it is. And about how often autistic people have these amazing abilities to see patterns and, and then they can therefore do certain jobs, which other people aren't neurodiverse wouldn't be able to do. And these jobs are really important. And, and how evolution supports neurodiversity is, is really, really interesting. But I think because there's obviously a link between neurodiversity and mental health at the moment, it's really important that schools particularly mainstream secondaries because they're the probably least neurodiverse friendly just because of the way the the model is have to get on board and have to have people all leadership teams should understand neurodiversity and one of the best things you can do is take a group of children around the school and talk to them about what doesn't work and they'll tell you why or go and do home visits to those children who aren't in school and talk to them about why they don't want to come into school because you need to hear it firsthand. You need to understand their lived experiences. Well, how can you make the right changes? So this gets into the whole positive mental health. And this is a whole tangent I could talk on for about an hour because you might have children, we're recording this in the summer holidays, so they might have six weeks of really good mental health. And they're going to go back to school in September. It's all going to go downhill. So is their problem their mental health? Yeah. Or is the, the problem school the school environment? And again, that goes back to the social model and us, us adapting our environment. And what's, when I talk to kids about adaptive environment, they want to do that. The children want to make their schools inclusive. They really, really do. It's almost like the adults are the ones that are slightly behind. Well, it's the way we've always done it. Yeah. Which is sad. I hate it. It's the thing. We, we are Lorraine Peterson. We are, we've got a... Was it a 20th century workforce, 19th century, they're trying to teach 21st century children. Yeah. And it is, we are stuck on, well, this is what my school was like, or this is the re going, yeah, we need, we need to change things. We need to really just ask what is working. We need to get a bit more courageous stepping away from research yes. and history because I remember 
I'm going to go back a long time to when we had the coalition between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. I know this is a really weird segue, but they've all said when this happened, the last time this happened, there were protests. Mark my word, by the middle of next week, there'll be protests and the whole country will be in. That's not what happened. And we always look back at when did this last happen? What happened? This is what's going to happen now. Yeah. And it generally it isn't. And the world is very different. The communication, the internet has had such a big impact. We've got to be braver Absolutely. with trying new things. I think one of the things schools are scared about at the moment is, and it's really tricky to, to, to move away from a model that's been there for such a long time, is we obviously have huge problems with attendance at the moment and, and persistent absentees and emotional-based school non-attendance. And we know a lot of these children are neurodiverse. And the the problem is because of the structure and the way the budgets work, these children are getting a really raw deal and they're often not kept in mind. And again, all the advice around it is really grey and woolly. So it's really difficult. And you've got some schools doing the bare minimum, which is drips and drabs of work, maybe on Google Classrooms, and some of them going above and beyond, setting up sort of Ebsner groups and completely alternative provisions and different timetables. But a lot of it comes down to funding. Because I don't think, for, a big thing for me at the moment is, I always thought I would go to work and my child would go to school. And that's no longer a given. It, and it's quite scary. And I, I work with so many parents who've had to give up careers and going to work and, and, and are grieving for the future that they thought they would have and their child would have because their child isn't in school. So not only is their child not having that lovely education they, they thought they would have, and they're grieving for that. They're grieving because they've had to give up their job to stay at home to look after them as well. And I've had so many tears in my office from people that are not living the life they thought they would be living because they just thought it was a basic thing that their child would go to school and they would be able to go to work. And it is, it, when you're saying that, it sounds like, oh, I'd had the option. It's that, the financial, the change financially of two people working and I, I remember when my children were young, it was, it's when only one of you's working, one of you staying at home, you literally have no money. You're spending loads because the other person's at home going out for coffees and going out to the park and going to a place. You're spending quite a bit of money. Yep. <laughs> just to entertain the little things. And then they go to school. That second one went to school. My wife went back to work and we're like, we're in the money. Yeah. And you can, you then start to plan, but we knew it was going to end. We knew that hard time was going to end and yeah. life was all right. But if then two years later, one of you's got to give up work, then that's a whole thing. And generally what's going to happen is the mum who has been out of work for five years, their career isn't going to be maybe on the same trajectory their partner yeah. is. So it doesn't make sense for their partner to give up work because they're going to be earning more money, yeah. which they need for the house. So the mum got to give up work again, but then that's a very isolating thing. Yes. I spent five years just talking to children. I need adults now. And I really get that. Although I'm saying it in a sarcastic tone, I completely get it. Yeah. And you're back in this situation that actually, as you said, my child is going to go to school. They're going to get a job. I'm going to get a job. We're going to do these things. These things I've always wanted to do with my heart. Not going to happen. Yeah. And my, my own son is neurodiverse, my four-year-old. And I am already starting to worry about whether he'll be a school refuser because of his difficulties are ones that mean school will be really hard for him. And I already have a plan A, B, C, D and E so I can have some kind of career and keep my sanity 
if he's a school refuser, because it's becoming a real thing now and the impact it will have on his mental health and the impact it will have on our mental health. And I just, I've just worked with so many parents that are broken and isolated and, and, and not coping, understandably, because their children are not in school. So we need to do better. The government need to give us more funding and we need to be giving really great provision to these children who are not in school. And I think schools are going to have to start having some sort of hybrid offer or more alternative provisions or those sorts of things because you can't just ignore 5% of your school population. It just can't happen. I've talked about this a little bit on a podcast a few times, but it was a, some project work and two people did. One went, let's crack on. Another person sat with this group of kids or adults and went, let's do some team building. They just spent a week doing team building. Mm-hmm. So, so the other, other group had already started. They were a week ahead in theory. At the halfway point, the team who did the team building for a whole week mm-hmm. were further ahead. So there's a thing of, we, we just, in the same way, I think a lot of secondaries don't teach revision. Yeah. We don't teach social skills. We assume the fact that they're not hitting each other, they've got it. Yeah. We don't actually teach them the social skills. We don't teach them to work as a team, support each other. Yeah. We don't do that. And I think if actually we spent more time doing that at secondary, I think lots of things like the phone issues, yeah. all these are, would, wouldn't be there. Because you see, you're in the staff and you see someone not feeling great. You go, you're right. Yeah. And you give them some support. Kids don't, we're not teaching that to kids. Yeah. You don't learn that till you're an adult. And it's like, if we did that when they were younger, they'd look after themselves. Yeah. Because a child will talk to another child more than they're going to talk to an adult. But I think, I almost think that one of the things we should do at secondary school is, don't, I don't, not not the tutor time, but I would say project work but not necessarily fully academic, but something where they have to work together and they're working to achieve something and they get that sense of accomplishment. Yeah. Not that they've just answered a six-mark question. Yeah. But, yeah, get rid of league tables. Biggest thing. And maybe look at the subjects we do because those subjects have been existed for a little, little time. Yeah. And I think schools need to reflect on is school an enjoyable experience for their students? Because if it's not, if you're an exams factory and your teaching's not great and you're not neurodiverse friendly, it's probably not a very nice experience. And I know there's research that show that a high percentage of children do not enjoy school. We need to address that. And that's the thing is the reason that I say get rid of league tables is Ofsted do not have anything in their things about attainment. It's the league tables and the local authority and the PISA schools and the government who are pushing us down, chasing scores. The fact that for a school, it is better for all children to sit a GCSE and fail it than for those children to do a functional skills qualification, which is actually going to support them better. The fact that it's better for them to do the GCSE for the schools means that's what they're going to do. So it's not about the children. It's really clear this is not about the children, the current criteria for judging and the I league tables. For me, that's the biggest difference between working in mainstream schools and working in special schools. In special schools, you meet the child where they are and, and, and make the curriculum bespoke to them. And you try and get them to the best possible place, but at the right pace for them. Whereas in mainstream schools, it's like, well, you should be here. You need to be here. Get here. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, it's your fault. Yes. So, so that's why I've gone back to special schools. And I just think if we all had that philosophy, and for me, special schools are actually 
always. Special schools in early years tend to be the people that are actually ahead of the game doing the right thing. And I just think the mainstream schools really need to catch up a bit. But it comes back to, and you were talking right at the beginning, the, the mental health of children, but also the mental health of the staff. Yeah. This is all impacted from above. Yeah. So it's those league tables. It's that pressure from the local authority to achieve. But the only way they can really measure that is through attainment at certain points. And that's about it. And, and it's the, we value what you measure, don't measure what you value. There's a phrase, one of yeah. those things. And it is, we can only measure attainments. That's all we really care about. Yeah. And we need to change that. That has to change from the local authority, from the government. And you, we really need courageous head teachers who go, I don't care about league tables. I'm going to do what's right for the children. Yeah. Because if we're not to come in, everyone loves the school and everyone's happy and your attendance is high and the officer to walk around the school, they're not going to punish you. The league tables are the league tables is a separate thing. And we've got to go, if we get everyone happy, your results will generally go up. Yeah. It's not that children, it's not a, you learn or you're happy. Yeah. If you just go after learn, it's going to fail. But if you go after happy, yeah, Maslow's hierarchy needs. Absolutely. The learning will follow. And they will thrive. Yeah. But you've almost got to just take some time to build the happiness up and the learning will follow and the outcomes will follow. Yeah. Don't just chase outcomes. But because we can't measure that and it's, there isn't someone saying step one, two, three, four, five, people aren't doing it. But it's what needs to happen. Mm. And you always know a good leader because they make you want to do more, not through fear. Yeah. But because you want to. You're inspired. And because you know it's recognised. Yeah. And that's what the children want. I think for me as a school leader at the moment, I obviously, number one, want to help the children with their mental health. I want to support parents and make them feel heard and connected with one another because they can feel so lonely. But I also feel this huge responsibility to protect my staff because like I say, the sleepless nights, that the amount they're carrying, the private therapy that they're paying for that they can ill afford just to talk about work, things like that are insane. And, and it's schools talking about where their boundaries are. And I think the police have done something recently, which has been really interesting because they realised that it was about just under a million hours of police time is spent sitting in hospitals with people waiting to see mental health professionals, because obviously the police are usually the first responder. They'll go out to something, then they have to take them to A&E, wherever, which I think the average wait time from police pickup to them being handed over to a medical professional is something like 14 hours. So just under a million hours of police time is spent sitting in A&E waiting or, or sitting in some sort of medical institution waiting to hand over to a medical professional. So that's just under a million hours where they're not preventing or solving crime. And is that the right thing? And then I, I put that back on my own role and I say, I wonder the, the hours that people are holding the space for children rather than teaching them or rather than doing the early intervention they need. And I think, that scares me. And I don't, I don't have the answer to that, but I do think schools need to boundary up. And I do think significantly more funding 
needs to be put into the NHS to deal with mental health so that we're not having to compensate for lack of services. And, and we've got people doing things that are completely outside of their remit. I've got one person I work with who, they, there's, a, there's a young lad who self-harms a lot and has suicide ideation and he has attempted and she's almost made it her mission for him not to die. And that's really hard. That, that's no one's job description. But then you're at the point where she's made it, they've made it their mission. If he does die, that's going to destroy that person. Yeah. And in reality, if you take all the way, it's, it's got nothing to do with her. She should never be in that situation. Yeah. But she also knows, as you all teachers, and this is the thing, well, if no one else is going to do it, I will do it. It's that that's sort of thing. mentality. And that's the personality type. Because like I say, a lot of the people that goes in, go into schools, they go in for their own sort of psychological reasons. And a lot of them go in because they want to perhaps rescue a version of themselves or, or put right wrongs in their own childhood or they're fixers or perfectionists or they want to save children. They want to give them a better deal and they go in with good intentions. And, and this is, again, where the boundaries between health and care can become really blurred because you've got these types of people that are really good eggs that will do above and beyond and where there is this big lack of services uh, and the compensation is needed they'll do it and they're dealing with things so far out of their remit and then I worry about the sort of secondary trauma that they'll experience from listening to these children disclose some quite horrific things or going through these self-harm cycles or hospital discharge cycles or eating disorders, body dysmorphia, all, all these things that school staff are doing. We have a lot of school staff that are supporting children with eating disorders that are having to watch them eat and go through this exhausting process of making sure they've eaten, but they can be very manipulative about it. And it, it's really hard. And is that what school staff should be doing? I can't remember, but someone was saying recently that although all of that should be supported by health. Yeah. What basically happens is they don't put the support in. And then when it starts impacting their learning, well, let's say that's an education problem, so education has to fund it because it's impacting yeah. their learning. It's the same yeah. with the police. The NHS are doing, not saying nothing, they don't have the money to do anything yeah. until it becomes an issue. When it yeah. becomes an issue, generally it's uh, legality. Yeah. Well, that's the police's issue. Yeah. And yeah. it's the NHS is just letting everyone else... Just yeah. be clear, if you're in the NHS, I'm not blaming you. Oh, Just absolutely. be clear, it's not you, it's the aboves, it's the purse holders, yeah. it's the policy makers who still don't really believe in mental health. Yeah. That is the issue. And, and all the NHS staff that I've worked with directly, oh my God, they're incredible. They're yes. absolutely incredible. When we have had those real crisis things and, and there have been NHS staff in, are directly involved, they are amazing and they do an incredible job and I know they're overworked, so I'm not disrespecting the NHS in any way. There's just not enough of them. And it's, it's the top. That's the yeah. problem. There's not enough educational psychologists. I remember one of the people I interviewed for my dissertation research was saying that they hadn't actually seen an educational psychologist since before COVID, despite requesting them on a weekly basis to come into their schools because they were so snowed under with the amount of EHCP and statutory assessments that they can't, again, do that work early on when the problem's just arising to nip it in the bud. There are nowhere near enough psychologists that can do the neurodiversity assessments and things like that. They have got to train more. They absolutely have to train more. 
I remember ringing cams a couple of months ago and, and I, I always ring cams. They probably get quite annoyed with me or Mindworks as it is now in our area, asking for updates on children that I'd referred. And the woman just got really frustrated and said, look, we've only got one psychologist that does these referrals. And I was like, what? You've got one psychologist fielding all these neurodiversity referrals. That's just insane. But equally, in, in Surrey, they've done a great thing where they've set up a, a, a group where we have direct contact with people from Surrey and Mindworks that we get to talk to regularly. And what I've really appreciated is their honesty about where they are. So we know the system's not great. We know children, are, the waiting list is too long, et cetera, et cetera. But they'll come back and we'll have a face-to-face conversation or over Teams. And they'll tell us why. They'll tell us what's happening. They'll tell us the current statistics and where they are. And they'll just be honest and they'll be human about it. And that really helps as a practitioner massively. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the work that they've been doing there. It is. It's, it's, it's money. It's funding. It's from above. And as always, it's always the people at the coalface who are being screwed. And one, one of the things that the NHS, we had this amazing primary mental health worker who was so experienced and, and had multiple other roles. And she taught me so much in the couple of years that I worked with her. We did lots of cases together. And I think one of the things is, I think the media has made us so petrified of a child not being okay that we forget as staff, as parents, that it's okay for your child to sit with uncomfortable feelings. So if they're a bit sad or a bit jealous or a bit stressed, they can sit with that and they need to sit with it and come through the other side of it and process it. But we rush in too quickly to try and rescue them or label it. And there's this massive overuse of psychiatric terms. Oh my God, have they got anxiety and depression? No, they're just a bit sad today. And it's okay to be sad and it's normal to be sad. And I think as as educators and as parents, we need to really normalize some of these feelings. You're a bit tired today. You're a bit sad today. You're a bit worried today. You're a bit stressed today. Of course you are. You've got an exam. That's normal. Everyone else in the year group is going to be stressed today because you've all got your GCSE maths or whatever. But the minute a child is remotely uncomfortable in any way, we're rushing to, to rescue them and to label it. And I think that's where perhaps sometimes, I don't want to not identify children that need help, but this is just becoming too much. It's like when your child is young and you meet up with some other parents and their kids and their child rolls over and yours isn't, you're going... What's wrong with you? Yeah. And is this, you compete, compare and compete. Yes. And it, it, to me, years ago, we had to keep up with the Joneses. What's the neighbour doing? Yeah. Yeah. We have that with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't get away from it. And you'll sit there and going, but then your child will do something else. And you're going, ha, 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 my child can do that. Yours can't. And you have this competition and you want your child to be good. You want your child to be this happy one. You don't want them. If they're not happy, you're embarrassed. Mm. And, I'm, and, I, and I remember hitting a point with my children I'm wrong, hitting a point with my children, yeah, make sure, not hitting my children, <laughs> getting to a point with my children, that I actually went, actually, the other people's view of my child isn't important. And if my child is having a tantrum, whatever, I'm dealing with that. I'm not dealing with anyone else's view of it. Yeah, I'm going to go for consistent parenting. Yeah. Whether I'm at home or, in, in, or out, my parenting is going to be the same. And we're going to deal with it and we're going to talk through it all. Yeah, my, my daughter's talking about my two-hour lectures. It's not a two-hour lecture. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's me 
trying to get a conversation with them about it and trying to get them to understand yeah. life. And I say to them, look, you don't have to follow my rules. You don't. You can do whatever you want in reality. But the moment you leave this house, you're going to have to follow rules. Yeah. So that's what I'm getting you ready for. Yeah. You don't have to do what I say, but it makes life easier. Yeah. In the long run. Yeah. And that's why explaining the why is really yes. important. Not, yeah. not my mum's, because I said so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, it's the why and it's building up that relationship and just going, yeah, sometimes my kids aren't great and sometimes they're great. And then you realise that you hide the not great times from others. Yeah. And then somebody finally reveals they're not great times and you're going, oh, that's exactly what's happening with me. But we don't like admitting to it. We we need to. And I now surround myself and I'm quite selective about my friends. Most of my friends are either counsellors, senkos, or neurodiverse, or have neurodiverse children. You're just children. getting your support network around. Yeah, you. I am because actually, I need my feelings validated, and I need to know that there's no judgment there because my son does struggle with social skills and things like that, and he may do some weird things from time to time. So I need for us both to feel safe in whatever environment we're in, and and not that we're going to be judged. But then everyone needs. This is why everyone needs to know about neurodiversity and we need to stop competing with one another and we need to stop I guess making being happy the absolute utmost thing and we need to go obviously we all want to be happy but no one is happy all the time that just doesn't happen and then we all go through all these physiological changes and and our emotions go up and down and they're like the weather and we need to teach this that they change and it is absolutely fine for children to sit for a short time with uncomfortable feelings but it's me it's Feelings are there for a reason. Yes. If you're always happy, you shouldn't actually be anywhere but a mental home. (laughs) (laughs) No one can be always happy. There's something wrong with you. But your feelings is. So I went away for a couple of days on my own without my teenagers. It was so peaceful. I read. I relaxed. I just did what I wanted. It was beautiful. And I came back and the feelings I got when I came back and I came into work and I was like, oh. I was like, okay, but why? Why yes. am I feeling that? Why am I sad? Sad's be- being sad yeah. is fine. Noticing your feelings. Why am I sad? And that's the thing. Positive mental health is not about going, you always have to be happy, but going, okay, why am I sad? It's because of this, right? Is that something that's just going to pass? Yeah. Is it actually where I am? I can't avoid this feeling. Yeah because the way it is, okay, so what can I do to change it? Yeah. Is there something I can work towards so I'm not feeling sad every day? Yeah. There are things, It's to me, it's telling you something's not right in your life. Can you change it? Yeah, and sometimes you can't change the situation. So you go, right, I can't change the situation. So what can I, I do? Yeah. Yeah, and this thing, that's the thing. It's, it's a sign, yeah. a signal, signal to you that something is not right. Yeah. You know sometimes you know you're angry. Have you ever been in a situation you don't know you're angry? Because sure. this had to be a couple of years ago. I was out and I was literally, I started to, I literally went, and it felt like the Incredible Hulk. Just, yeah. I literally realised I was angry, but I hadn't known. I literally just suddenly feel like my body and went, ooh, where's this come from? And it was whatever I was talking about made me angry, but I didn't realise. I'm going, well, that's not great. I've got to change that. But it was normally you're angry, something happened right in front of you, it's your yeah. reaction. But this was sometimes it's a long-term thing. 
and it can build up. Yeah. But again, it's a sign that actually this isn't great for me. I need to change something. And that's what our feelings are there for. Yeah. If you're saying if you're happy all the time, you're not connected to reality. No. We do um, a lovely activity called the happiness audit, which is one I learned donkeys years ago, but I still love it, where you just sit down with a child and it's really nice and you can colour it in and make it all lovely for them. And you, you look at the things and the people and the places and the activities that make you happy and you write them all down or draw pictures or whatever is appropriate for the child developmentally. And then you, you work out how you can integrate more of those things into your life and it teaches them about taking responsibility for their own happiness and it's a really lovely activity I love doing it with the kids and I normally do my own one and sort of model it to them first which they love I actually did this recently what I did what I did was it's things that make you happy but I also I had to put in ease of access because obviously holidays make me really happy (laughs) yeah winning the lottery would probably make me happy but (laughs) I've got to earn money so I can't go on a holiday every weekend so it's certain things, it was the, it makes me happy, but yeah. actually it's quite hard to do. Yes. And so I sat there, I did this all, and that's why I spent three days reading, because reading makes me quite happy, because yeah. I just, I lose time, which sounds odd, but it's like I'm, I'm relaxed, and I'm just, I, I'm reading a book, and that's my world for six hours or eight hours, what, literally however many hours, which is just, and there'll be probably subconscious processing going on. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not I'm consciously in the book. Subconsciously, I'm dealing with stuff. I'm going through stuff. I'm bringing things down. And when I put that book down, it's like, so what thoughts going to pop into my head? Yeah. Because I'm calmer. I can deal with it. So, yes, that's one of the things which came out that is reading is a nice, easy to access thing for me to do. And this is part of that, what we can teach about in, in promoting positive mental health in schools. And I find that students love knowing more about their teachers and what makes them happy. And, and then that's how you can model it to them. And, and you are a well-being role model. And you talk about the fact you go to yoga or you cook a healthy meal or you go running or you do meditation or you have your escapism by reading or whatever it is. Tell the children about this stuff. They love it normally. But it's... it's- You've got to remember, these children, if they're feeling sad, they don't know how to get out of it because no one's taught them. Yes. So it's not saying you're not sad, you are happy because you should be happy. And I think the Ali Knowles said that you can't say you're silly or that their feeling is real. Yes. And it needs to be validated. It needs to be validated. Whatever you think of that situation, yes, who cares if Chelsea lost? This child does, so therefore it's important. You can't get rid of that. That is what happened. That's why they're sad. But how can you help them? Mm. But that's the thing. But you have to do the modelling, which means you have to, as, as an adult, you have to be vulnerable by sharing things about you. And not the really, but then somebody on the podcast not long ago said they went in as a supply teacher one day and they'd had a really bad previous day. And they just literally went, imagine as a supply teacher going yeah. into a secondary school in year nine, mm. really bad class. And she just went, really bad time. I think someone had died or something had happened. I'm not in a good place. So if I'm shouting at you, I'm sorry. Mm. It's not you. It's my thing. I'm sorry. They were really nice to her. Yeah. Because kids are really nice. They're, they're, not, they're yeah. doing it because they think you're not. They're almost like I want to make you, if I make you human. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. Yeah. If, you, if, you're, if you're an inhuman teacher, I want to hurt you to thrill your human. Yeah. Whereas if I know you're human, then you're like everyone else we're doing a big project at the moment we use zones of regulation in the the special school where i'm deputy head and 
we find it's really helpful and it's amazing because you've, you've got children and they'll talk about when they're regulated or dysregulated and we want to help them to be able to feel and label their emotions, to notice them, to put the right strategies in place, which is really helpful. But we find when we get to key stage four, it's not really cool anymore. And we're looking at ways to make it more accessible for our older students. And one of them is actually having conversations around it, but in a more adult way. Because like you said, when you notice your colleague is a bit upset, you're going and check in with them. Well, that's the same as like, we do our morning check-ins and we say, what colour are we on? But you're not going to go up and go, oh, you look a bit blue today. You're in the blue zone. What's, you're just going to go. You're like, mate, what can I do? Can I make you a cup of tea? But understanding that as you get older, you still use the zones and what you've learned from it, but in a more adult way so that when they go to college, they're not still using the colours and the symbols. They're just communicating. But it had to be explicitly taught to them yes. because the majority of them are neurodiverse and a lot of them wouldn't have been able to grasp it without the explicit teaching of it. No, it is. It, you're building, oh, so that's the basics, yeah, colours. But then as you get older, it's, it's easy. We're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. We're noting that that's not right. I've got to give yeah. them a call. Or I always talk to them, but hang on, they've gone a bit quiet. What's not, something's not right. And it's, it, you're still doing the same thing. Yeah. And the noticing is really important. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We've been talking for a while. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? I know you could probably go on for hours. Yeah, I could. Just, I just want to just recap the, the solutions for schools because I'm a very solution-focused person and I always want to, to be hopeful because I know things can get quite dark at times. So just having discussions around boundaries in your schools, making sure there's a real clarity around people's roles and teams that they're working together and things like job descriptions are really explicit making sure those staff that are really carrying that load of mental health are having high quality professional supervision, making sure, be brave and be bold and be one of those schools that's going to go out there and be neurodiverse friendly and teach about neurodiversity. Another thing actually that I didn't mention before, but it's really important is take time because we find that school staff are so busy. They just never have, it's something that always falls to the bottom of their to-do list, but getting to know their services and their signposting like just take a day off timetable and find out everything that is available to you from a mental health point of view so that you can signpost and direct because there are some great services and resources out there. Supporting parents, listening to parents, hearing about their lived experiences, connecting parents, teaching parents about neurodiversity, neuroscience, all those things, teaching young people about psychology and neuroscience and also when you are doing that early intervention when you have time to do it making sure you're using really good quality research-based interventions things like lego therapy or drawing and talking elsa and just as we've just talked about normalizing mental health and not overusing sort of psychiatric terms okay you're a bit sad today you're a bit stressed today okay well we'll get through it we'll watch a film together we'll have some ice cream or that's normal I think those would be my sort of top tips for helping schools. But I hope schools will spend some time really thinking about their boundaries between education and care and who's picking up what, because otherwise things will get quite messy and your retention rates will, will drop. And we need to take care of those staff so that they can take care of themselves and take care of those children. I remember there is a difference between being anxious and anxiety. Yes. Everyone can get so. anxious. Anxiety is when it goes to the nth degree type thing, when you just, it's too much. So we can all be anxious. That's fine. Anxious yeah. means you care. Yeah. 
That's the thing. Anxious means I'm worried about my results. I'm worried about what's going to happen. That's because you care about it. But it's when it stops impacting you, then it becomes anxiety. So yeah. don't be scared of saying anxious, but say anxious, not you have anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. So it's things like that and normalizing being anxious. Yeah. But it's because everyone gets anxious. Yeah. You're going somewhere new. You're anxious. Is it left? Is it right? Am I going to have somewhere to park? Yeah. Anything like that. Moving house. We all get anxious. Doesn't mean we have anxiety. Yeah. It's a stressful time. Being anxious about it is normal. I, I was anxious about today. I was absolutely petrified. I was going to swear the whole way through, but I'm very impressed that I haven't. <laughs> and so will my uh, friends and colleagues. Well, thank you. No, no. But when I leave the studio now, I won't be anxious anymore. I don't have anxiety. I was just anxious about today. Because oh, you want to make. Yeah. So yeah, you I go care. for interviews and it's because you care. So that's the thing is that feeling is again. It's telling us I'm anxious because I want something. I'm yeah. anxious because of this. So again, going back to that feeling sad, and that is it's a sign to you. It's a, it's a thing. Yeah. But yeah, anxiety is when it goes beyond just worrying to when it's really impacting yeah. you and things like that. So thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. So I've be uh, Zara's given me her Twitter feed. I'm hoping I'll see if I can get some uh, some resources out of her as well as she can share, and I'll put those in the show notes. And you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast, but also on our website. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at the Sendcast, on Facebook the Sendcast, on Instagram the Sendcast. Who knew? And if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what's available, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a wide range of assessment products at all schools to show small sets of progress for pupils with SEND. And if you're schooling in England, still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or how to assess progress in secondary for those working below, get in contact. You can also find out about our online training, our CPD, read our blog, watch our webinar. This is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you. Bye. Bye.